With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Right, thanks for listening to Behind the Knife. This is Patrick Georgioff and BTK Surgical Education Fellow Nina Clark. And we've got a special episode for you today. This is our first ever BTK throwdown, a spicy debate, an epic battle, a war of words and ideas between giants in the field of trauma surgery, all of whom were compelled, or at least I guess in some cases triggered, uh, by a recently published paper in the Journal of Acute Care and Trauma Surgery that explored time to vascular access in trauma patients, uh, and they used video review to do so. And the authors concluded that, and I quote, intraosseous access should be considered a first-line therapy in hypotensive trauma patients, end quote. And with that, lines were drawn and Twitter alliances formed. So let's introduce our throwdown contestants. In the pro-IO corner, we have the paper's first author, Dr. Ryan Dumas, who's an assistant professor of surgery at UT Southwestern in Dallas, and Dr. Michael Vela, who's an assistant professor of surgery and the trauma medical director at the University of Rochester Kessler Trauma Center. And I'm going to jump in here if I can, Mike Vela mm-hmm. in Rochester. So I, I need to disclose I am a paid speaker for Teleflex Corporation. Wait, quick, what does Teleflex make? <laughs> well, they make ECIO, but I can tell you that it's a, it's a quick, uh, I talk about their quick flight line of project products and, you know, the relationship started after this. And in the anti-IO corner, unfortunately, one of our contestants uh, had to uh, drop out at last minute. That was Dr. Dennis Kim, who's professor of surgery at the University of British Columbia, where he's also the medical director of trauma services on Vancouver Island. And amazingly enough, those those kind-hearted uh, uh, Canadians uh, apparently are propagating some violence today. And uh, Dr. Kim had to uh, run to the operating room for some emergent cases. So fortunately, uh, we have Dr. Bilal Joseph, who will most definitely hold it down for uh, Dr. Kim, in his absence, uh, Dr. Joseph is professor of surgery and chief of general surgery uh, and vice chair of research in the Department of Surgery at the University of Arizona. So with that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble. Yeah, if I had a nickel uh, for every time I heard somebody had an emergent case and bowed out of a debate at the last minute, I'd be a risk woman. <laughs> But first, let's uh, give everybody some background on this paper. We're talking about a paper that was titled Moving the Needle on Time to Resuscitation, an East Prospective Multicenter Study of Vascular Access in Hypotensive Injured Patients Using Trauma Video Review. So this was a multicenter prospective observational study that was supported by East using data obtained from trauma video review, which we'll get into in a little bit. The researchers wanted to look at how we obtain access to start resuscitating hypotensive trauma patients. Specifically, they hypothesized that IO access would be faster and more likely successful than peripheral IVs or central lines. The study included data from 19 centers that were all part of this multicenter study, and patients were included if they were over the age of 16, hypotensive on arrival, and if they had a new attempt at getting access in the trauma bay. They collected data on basic demographics, procedure types and times, provider-level variables, and injury severity, The main exposure was the type of access attempted, including peripheral IVs, IOs, or central lines. And the main outcomes included success of the attempt, which was defined as blood in the IV tubing or a successful flushing of the IV catheter, and duration of time between the needle entering the skin to successful placement. A secondary outcome was time to resuscitation, which they defined as the time it took from a successful attempt to actually receiving product or fluids via the catheter. So we're very uh, lucky to have Dr. Dumas here with us today. He's the study's lead author. Uh, Ryan, I want to ask you to provide some more details on trauma video review and if you want to expand it all on the methodology that we just set out. Yeah, no, that was a great summary. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so trauma video review, I think, is incredibly powerful. And it's a specifically incredibly powerful study trauma resuscitation. 
I think, you know, we know so little about how we take care of our patients when they arrive in that first zero, five, 10, 15 minutes, because a lot of it has been dependent on chart review. And as good as our trauma nurses are at, at capturing those moments, they're just not as good as, as trauma video review. And so trauma video review allows us to go back and watch resuscitation. So you can imagine that, like, this is a really powerful tool for research, uh, obviously, as we've used it here and leveraged it in this case, but also education. We have a robust trauma video review conference here where we watch tape, essentially. I mean, you can't, you can't imagine an athlete going and play the Super Bowl without watching tape, right? Like, that's the analogy I give when people ask me, what, what is trauma video review? I was like, it's watching tape. It's getting better. But they're usually watching tape on the other team. They're not watching their own tape. Just going to put it out there. You don't, you don't think, you don't think that Peyton Manning watches how his offensive line lines up and points her out. Uh, I don't know. I think so. So for us, that's when it's the team, right? It's about getting better as a team. And so much of what we've studied has been like, we aren't as good as we think we are is the bottom line. We've looked at thoracotomies, immersive department thoracotomies, almost 20% of patients in that, that study in a high volume center didn't even get a right chest tube in a center that does some of the most thoracotomies in the country. We looked at chest tubes. So not thoracotomies, but tube thoracostomy. Average time to placing a chest tubes takes eight and a half minutes once you've made the decision. That's a long time. And so these are all things that we can change and we can modify. Those are modifiable risk factors for adverse out, adverse outcomes in the trauma bay. And so that's the, the power of video review. And so we've looked at all these things. And vascular access is one of the most important things we do. And quite frankly, everybody thinks they're better at it and faster at it than we are. And the data is consistent. And so, you know, the camera doesn't lie is the bottom line. And we've shown that trauma video review is better than in-person, real, live data collection because you can pause, you can rewind, you can fast forward, you can zoom in. So I can tell you exactly the second blood hits the veins. That's awesome. And I, I'll, I'll push back on Dr. Joseph. In high school soccer, I watched my own tape. So going back that far, which is almost 20 so years. Let, let, me, let me get this right here. We got two people on the other side. We have the moderator on their side and me sitting here by myself. I was gonna, I was gonna... If I added all three of you guys, the number of patients you all saw together in my tenure, I'd say we're probably even. So we're still even. Keep going. All right, shots fired. Carry on. Carry on. Keep going. <laughs> I've been paid ahead of time, don't worry. Uh, um, Dr. Dumas, I did want to clarify a couple of things, just reading closely through this study that I think are really important to just set as baseline understanding. First is that you measured your time to access was the difference between the needle hitting the skin and the flash or the flush seen in the IV catheter, correct? correct. Yep. Okay, perfect. And then you are including all access attempts. So that means not just the very first attempt at getting access, but you might have multiple for the same patient, correct? Correct. Yeah. So in the study, there was over, there was 600 patients or almost 600 patients, but over 1400 access attempts. And just to be clarified, it's new access attempts. So once that arrives. Ryan, it's important to mention what she asked you the second, the second outcome was time for when the fluid hit the IV catheter, correct? Correct. But that so wasn't the one time was time of insertion, and then one outcome was when the volume was flowing through and actually hits the catheter. Is that correct? Correct. Which we defined as time to resuscitation issue. Perfect. Thank you so much. No, I think I think when I read this, that was one of the things I had to keep reminding myself was it wasn't like time to hit the door of the trauma bay to getting resuscitated. It was really like the true time of taking that attempt at getting that catheter in, whatever type it might be. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, do you have just a quick breakdown of where physically the attempts at peripherals, IOs, and central lines tended to be? Were there differences across centers um, in practice and location of where these lines were being placed? Yeah, two things. Uh, first, first, just to do, go back to the time of resuscitation initiation, it is the time they hit the door to the time the, IV, the blood or crystalloid is flowing. It, that is, that's key. So it is. Still flow crystalloid? You guys still do crystalloid? That's a whole nother podcast. Let's just uh, let's keep going. No problem. Go ahead with that crystalloid. Yeah. We'll so just go on with the blood. I, admittedly, the time blood it's hits the main. So from arrival, because we know the second the patient arrives when they're they're in the video screen, and the second the blood is flowing in the tubing. So uh, and that to answer your question is a good one about uh, location sites. So we do know whether it's tibial versus humeral. So over a little over two hundred patients got IOs. Uh, the majority were tibial, but there was also almost hundred patients that got humeral. We don't know. We did look at success depending by site, both for cat, both for CBCs and PIVs, and there was no statistically significant difference. With that being said, let's move on to the results of the study. This included 581 patients from the 19 centers that we mentioned. 
and 61% of patients suffered from penetrating injury with a median ISS of 22. And so the first measure that we looked at was success, yes or no, when it comes to uh, whether or not uh, access, uh, vascular access was achieved. And for IO, that was at 93% of patients, for peripheral IV, 67% of patients, and for central line, 59% of patients. And the differences between all three of those access types were significantly different. The second measure was time to access. And uh, for this, uh, IOs came in at 36 seconds, while peripheral IVs were at 44 seconds, and central lines 171 seconds, which is just shy of three minutes. And uh, there were significant differences when you compared IO time to access versus central line, and when you compared peripheral IV versus central line. So sorry, lots of numbers here. One more measure. No difference, no difference between IO and peripheral, right? That's important to know, right? There was no difference there. It just, and then we can talk about success rate later and how that, you know, is calculated. I, I will say, I think it's important to understand too, that the timing for these, for the, for the, especially for the central lines did not include setup. So you have to take that a, a little bit into account. This is time from the needle touching the skin uh, to the time that blood was drawn back. Um, into the, into the is that information available? Like, yes. Did you look at that setup time? Yeah. No, we did. We did. We did not calculate. Well, there's so much center level variability, right? In the is your is your central line kit in the bay? Is it across the hall? Like you know. So so we we felt like looking at the procedure specifically itself was the most important. All right, and then the last uh, piece of uh, the last result that we should talk about is time to resuscitation. So Ryan, I'll let you uh, uh, explain that a bit in, uh, in some more detail. Right. So we compared. Uh, those who had IV, IO access as their first attempt and to all the other uh, access attempts. So that's the BPIV or, or central line. And if you had an IO first approach, okay, regardless of whether you came in with IV access or not, you were resuscitated faster. That difference was even more pronounced when you came in without IV access. And I think it's important, right? Because for those of us that have taken care, a lot of us take care of patients that arrive from private vehicle, police drop off, um, you know, you can imagine that patient has already been in the field, doesn't have access, is already an extremist, already hypotensive. Uh, and so if you have, uh, if you have no access or from pre-hospital, it's going to be even harder to get additional access in the Bay. I think that's exactly what that proves. Cause a lot of those studies, uh, a lot of those patients probably didn't get any volume, right. Or didn't get colloid in the field. Um, and that may have made their access extent easier had they gotten it in the field. And correct me if I'm wrong, you know, it may seem clinically insignificant, but I think there, I remember seeing a relatively recent paper that looked at time to whole blood administration and saw that for every minute delay in whole blood administration, there was a 2%. Yeah, that was my paper and I appreciate you bringing that up, but you know, you, that's a big assumption though. I mean, when you look at the largest trial done in IOs for cardiac arrest and look for ROSC, I mean, we're not even talking about clinical outcomes. You're just talking about time right now. It, it it didn't make a difference in the in the pre-hospital. And I think, you know, that's 20,000 patients. I think that's like, what, two times 20, 40 times more patients than you had in your trial. And I think I would just say it's, I think you got to be careful, right? I don't, I, I think we, we're, we're like mixing up a, a lot of things here, but, you know, access, access time, access success are one piece of it. But then, you know, the access itself and its ability to function is important what your transfusion is important. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. I don't want to divert too much now, but like even the the time to resuscitation piece. I mean, you said it a minute ago that there is vast differences in centers and centers abilities to pull the central line or pull the whole blood. So tell me, how did you control for time that it took the nurse or someone to hang the blood or bring the blood to the bedside to get to IO resuscitation? Like did it start, did the clock start when did the clock start for the resuscitative fluid? At what point? When it came in the room and you saw it on camera? Or was it when it started running and when it was spiked? Or was it when, because that makes a huge difference in this outcome, right? You got to control for that each center. You can grab whole blood in my center in 10 seconds. Some centers you can grab whole blood for a couple minutes. And so I just want you to comment a little bit about this whole secondary outcome of time to you know resuscitation, because there's a lot of components that go into resuscitation and that is center, and the center variability makes that very hard to control or even study. And that's why we made it a secondary outcome and not the primary, because exactly that. Like some people have a blood bank that's on the second floor, don't have cooler than TV in the hall. 
So the time of resuscitation, we, we controlled for that by essentially saying that, hey, we know the patient is getting resuscitated when we see blood and IV tubing. That, that, and so everybody's, that is the time. And so that is big old, I mean, you can't, you can't. Yeah, but what about the patient who didn't get the blood in the IV tubing because it took an extra minute or 30 seconds or two minutes or five minutes to bring the blood in the room? Well, it, eventually they either got it or they didn't and it was in the tubing or it wasn't, right? Yeah, but it takes, but the moment to get to that point, there's no doubt that there has got to be some discrepancies. And you clearly said twice, and I asked you that there's center specific, you know, uh, uh, factors that play into this. And that's where I think you got to be careful with that resuscitation outcome. I'm not sure it's as clean as we think it is. If that makes and sense. what were those numbers again, uh, uh, Michael, do you have those numbers for the time difference between um, PIV IO and central lines for resuscitation in terms of seconds or minutes, so we user or listeners can uh, yeah, you know, put that in their mind. The difference was about I think fifty three seconds all comers, and if you look at the subgroup who came in with no access, which you know regardless of the argument of you know the confounders and the, the, the you know the variability, and certainly that's true. Um, if you look at the subgroup of patients, and I think it's probably the most important subgroup that comes in with no IV access, right? They're in, they're they're hypotensive, they have no access. We look at those patients specifically. The difference between IO and the other modalities was about was about two minutes. But I think I mean you know Dr. Joseph's point's well taken. I, I you know I I do think that uh, video review can do this. You can look at other factors. You can see when the blood was delivered. You can see when the person ordered the blood. You can get granular like that, and it's probably worth doing that. It becomes more complex to do it that way, and there's no doubt that there's variability. So I think it, it you know. It certainly is a limitation of the current results, but it, it is a plug for video review and that that's a lot of that stuff can be done. You know, you keep mentioning these subpopulations and I'm just going to bring up another point, right? So when we talk about time, it was 36 seconds for uh, IO, 44 seconds for peripheral, and then 171 seconds for central, right? And this whole time thing, and then you said, well, well the patients who didn't have any access when they came in, it was even longer, right? But, you know, you guys did not look at, you know, centers that use ultrasound, right, as to put in peripheral IVs. Our nurses are trained in it. Our centers are trained in it. And I will tell you, two studies, very well done, very well written, that show that when you use an ultrasound to place a peripheral IV, you reduce the time by half and you increase the success rate. And so there's no difference in time that you get a peripheral IV or IO to put in, right? There's no difference there. Where the difference comes in is the ability to do that. And we'll get into skill set and usability and ability for Texas residents or New York residents to put IVs in versus, I heard there's a little pushback online. I'm just joking. All the love to all the residents. You're in trouble, Walt. You know, but I, but I think but I think that, I do think you got to think about it. I mean, you did not allow the subset of ultrasound place peripheral IVs, which we know reduces time by half. And we also know increases success by, you know, almost threefold. So those studies, were those patients hypotensive? I mean, I'm not even going to go to that subset yet because I have a little data for that subset, but let's just talk about, yeah, they were absolutely, those are patients like, if you look at like the Raboa data, if you look at other things, people are looking at access, right? And Joe DeBose and I, in full disclosure, we've been working on trying to develop a study to show that using the ultrasound to put in the IV and actually measuring it, you can actually get in earlier, get in faster and get in safer with less complications. And that's what all the ultrasound studies show. And so if you're going to subgroup of patients that didn't have any any access when they came in, you need to subgroup if you have centers of the 20 centers or 19 centers that were using ultrasound and show me the data that peripheral versus IO when ultrasounds needed. So that ultrasound data is fairly is powerful, and we'll have to include uh, some links to the show notes in that. And, and with that, Ryan, in terms of the study design and having video review, you can look and see if an ultrasound is used or not. You can see it clear as day. So... Uh, came up during the review of the article and it's a it's a very it's a very valid point i think especially in this day and age where ultrasound is ubiquitous in the trauma bay and it's become a big part of you know what we, what we do so i think it's absolutely it's, it's exactly like mike is saying it's a trauma video review is a perfect about modality to study this we can again we can do the, the same thing and the same analysis and look at how effective because i guarantee you it's still um it is probably effective and very helpful but it's, we're still not as fast as we think we are, you know, when we use video. So, and do you have any data on like the person placing the IO? I would question. We 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 do. We collected all tra uh, training level. Uh, uh, there was no differences between different uh, between EMTs, nurses, those kinds of things. I mean, who 
Because I can tell you, it depends, right? Most nurses aren't placing the IO, the EMTs are, or the physicians, or the ED residents, right? I do think there is variability. There's variability of a well-seasoned trauma nurse to throw an IV from the door and just kind of like dart it in versus... And so I think, I think again, that's another human factor that I don't know how well the video can actually pick up and then correlate with every... You said almost a thousand attempts. Imagine you have to correlate users with every one of those attempts. I think that's another area where, you, you know... Too great. Yeah, we did do that, and there was no difference. So we did. We we collected. Uh, we had people. Uh, the for the level of provider for every attempt was documented. All right. At the risk of this becoming, uh, in Dr. Kim's words from our email thread, too manly, uh, I'm going to cut it and ask. There's a few things that I think, in terms of actually implementing this at various centers, I think about like Harborview. You, really rarely see an IO catheter be used because we've got great ER nurses who can get an IV in before I blink an eye in pretty much any circumstance. Um, so I definitely think that that setup time is is important here. The other thing I was thinking about were, were patient factors, right? You mentioned that IO might be easier in specifically high BMI patients, which we're seeing more and more of. And, and I wonder your thoughts on that or if you have any data to suggest that there are different patient factors. I know you said females, I think, had more likelihood of having an unsuccessful first attempt. But yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah, great question. Uh, it's one of those things when you do a study and you go back and look at, you know, secondary studies and analyses, what you could have done and what you should have collected. We we unfortunately didn't collect BMI um, because I think it would be really interesting to develop essentially, you know, a, a scoring tool to predict difficult access because I think you're exactly right. I mean, we, female body habitus, which I think makes sense uh, to you if you think about maybe smaller, smaller vasculature, um, but a few female gender, excuse me, um, did shake out. Um, but um, uh, we don't have any access on or data on EMI. And one thing too, uh, just to, on your point, to your point about, you know, the culture. So I was the same way I, when I was in training at Parkland, like everybody got essentially a right femoral vein CVC. And then I went to fellowship and I still remember the first first day, second call, whenever I and and every single person was getting bilateral tibial IOs. And I, I had the same reaction probably below I had It was like, you know, what is going on here? Like, I just want to tell you that in 2003, were you even in residency yet or school or training? I was part of the study at Henry Ford when we were putting humoral IOs. When they first started this study, we were one of the first centers. And I'm going to tell you, like, these big dreams that you got for where IO is going to come into trauma, 20 years later, I'm telling you, we're still get these low. And I don't think, I'm, gonna say, I'm not going to say there's, this is a never event, but this is not, we're not going to run around and start sticking IOs and everything. I mean, we get 6,000 dramas a year here. And I'm going to tell you, I don't remember the last time that we talked about an IO to start a resuscitation. And then we'll talk about the big outcome, which is clinical outcome of does it make even a difference and whether or not people live or die or go. We're not, we're not ever suggesting that it should be your vascular access of choice. It is a bridge. It is a port in a storm. It is a way to get volume. I, I just the other day we had, you know, it took us six and a half minutes to get blood into a patient. And I asked, I asked one of my partners if they had an IO and they said, no. And I was like, well, you can pressure bag while you're getting your CVC that you think you're so fast at. You can get some blood into the patient with a pressure bag at about 150 cc's an hour or a minute. And so that's two, that's a unit of blood in two minutes. And then based on the Pittsburgh data, where time to early intervention uh, decreases mortality uh, by two percent, and so like there's no, there's not a real yes. Everything we do has complications, and everything we do has you know adverse events. But ten, ten to fifty percent of IOs don't work, right? Is that a fair number? Ten percent, ten to fifteen percent. So well, and, yeah, and 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 then, so I'm just gonna go on. You guys keep you've brought up this time to intervention, time to resuscitation, time to OR, time to whole blood. It all makes a difference, and and I'm gonna tell you, you know. There is data also showing that when you have a hypotensive sick, I mean, there's animal work that shows that your IO doesn't work as well in those hemodynamically sick or unstable patients. You're not getting a unit of blood like you think you are. We didn't even talk about what the blood flows through, what it looks like as functionality once it comes through an IO and the bone marrow as it does. And we know there's differences. To tell me that, you know, there's there are studies that show that peripheral IV resuscitation leads to survival improvement compared to IO. So flow rates with a 16 gauge with a pressure bag uh, have been measured at up to 390 mLs per minute. 18 gauge down to 210, 20 gauge down to 140 mLs per minute. 
with the cordis and either again on a pressure bag you can get up to half a liter 600 700 mls per minute between what you're looking at and then if we look at 15 gauge humeral or tibial ios if you look at uh, cadaver data you can get with pressure bags up to 150 160 cc's per minute so just to put the, all that into context and, and that'll obviously be important when it comes to the clinical application uh, as we discuss that. So, sorry, go ahead, Bilal, you were saying? I mean, to your point, you need two minutes to get whatever you're going to resuscitate through an IO and, uh, that you could do in a minute in the peripheral IV. I mean, it's just, there is- You don't even have the peripheral IV. Yeah, well, I mean, but, I mean how many times, but, but again, you just, Ryan just said, this is not about to replace peripheral. And, you know, we back to flow rates. I mean, I really think you got to think about what that blood that's coming in at the rate you guys are claiming is really making that much of a clinical difference in resuscitation of that patient because you didn't look at outcomes in your study. And I just, my job here today is not to argue that you should never put an IO or IOs are bad. My job is to say careful with your message because you run around telling everyone that, you know, IO first, there's a lot of IO plus IV versus IV alone that the data eventually doesn't show what you guys are claiming. Those are bigger and and more power powered studies to show that. So again, I, I think the flow rates, I mean, he just mentioned the flow rates, you, time to resuscitation. If I get you in an IO and I'm going to stop talking because I've been talking too much. If I, if I, you know, if you go through an IO. You could just speak double because Dennis isn't here today. So you, you get double the time. And so, and, so and, and that's true. And so like the center, I mean, if you're not working and pushing the IVs in your 67%, you know, success rate in peripherals, that's awful. Like we need to do something about that in our skill sets and during training, because if you, there's no doubt that a peripheral IV at the same time period of a IO, even if it's 10, 15, 20 seconds difference is going to get better for that patient. But I did a little bit of like rudimentary back of the napkin kind of math. And it, it does look like once you factor in those flow rate differences between IOs and peripherals, that difference clinically meaningfully difference, I think goes down a fair bit. So I, I would want to get y'all's thoughts on that. I mean, you know, I guess, I guess in terms of the message of the paper, you know, I, I hope the message is not that IO is the go-to line. I, I hope that the message is that IO is a bridge to more definitive access, but more importantly, and maybe this isn't conveyed as much in the, in the paper as it should be, but I think my message is at least why not do it at the same time? I mean, if you look at, you know, if you look at a, a paper from, I don't know, it's 10 years old now, military data, a retrospective, thousand soldiers and, and civilians, actually, um, sorry, not a thousand uh, individuals, but a thousand IO attempts. And, you know, it's retrospective data, but the, the overall complication rate was 1.4%. And those were relatively minor complications. Most of those were failed attempts at access. They reported, you know, zero major complications. And other studies have shown that too. I mean, the, 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 the major complication rate of these is relatively low. So what's the downside? If you, if, if you can get access quickly, you can do it at the same time as more definitive access. It gets you a port. You know, we've been focusing on blood, but it's also a conduit for other medications. It's a conduit for uh, RSI medications. Like what's the downside with a low complication rate Doing it at the same time, giving you a port of access for medications and blood. I guess that, that yeah. for event. Just one quick point. The mortality, actually, one of the things that surprised me the most, us the most, we all know that these patients are sick who arrive hypotensive in this cohort. Mortality in the study was 44%. Everybody thinks ATLS happens in a, in a vertical fashion. ATLS happens in a horizontal fashion. We treat patients in a horizontal manner. And so if things can happen simultaneously, you better believe when I say put an IO in, somebody's doing a central line. But if they struggle because the data shows that it takes longer, I'm also going to be like, hey, pressure back that first cooler or the first old blood unit while, you know, Dr. X finishes the, the, the CDC that they will get in three minutes. There's no correlation at that time that 200 cc's in a minute or 150 cc's in a minute is going to make a, that much of a difference. I just, again, I, I caution that, that, I mean, there are studies again showing things that lower odds of ROS when you went in with an IO versus peripheral because it's the impact of what you're transfusing is it really there is the is the moment you start transfusing is that impact you didn't your paper didn't prove this that the impact right. of the of the blood in the one minute 30 second made a difference and until you prove that I think some of those things or those claims that you're making aren't valid volume improves hypotension and we know that hypotension is to totally deleterious to our patient population 44% of these patients died. And so if I can get any volume in there, like I'd rather do that than nothing. 
you, you sounds really good. Let me tell you. And I'm glad you know that hypotension is bad, but like, you know, they're teaching you in Texas, but let me tell you, and I, I will tell you, you gotta be careful. Again, you are thinking that everyone listening is, is just, I don't want people to start the same thing we did with the Reboa, man. And I hate, yeah, no, it is what people think that balloon equals save life. People are going to think IO equals and, and I think our goal should continue to be you, you, the things that you're saying, give me hope to say, oh my God, I should put an IO on everybody because you know, I'm going to, if I, if I need it, I can just push that volume. And that's not the message. I think you got to be careful. And I think it's a fine to have it as a tool. And many triple centers don't use it at all. I'm glad that these 20 centers use it sometime. And if you look at the denominator of the number of peripheral attempts overall versus the number of times you had to put an IO in. It's probably one or three percent, and the complication rate's probably about five to ten percent, especially in centers that don't do it every single day, every single time. Now you got user variability. Again, these are things that that was got what got me triggered about this paper. It's not that I'm glad that you guys did this and you should keep pushing this science, but you got to be careful. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate all those those points, and I, they're all well, very well taken. And and to be clear, we are actually very interested now in looking at some of like actually looking under electron microscope what happens to RBCs and IO. So we may have some of it. And it may surprise you You're to right. say, oh, my God, it destroys them. You know, so before we make claims, let's just let's just make sure we know what we're talking about here. I mean, that's all. But again, I think it happens simultaneously. And I think in somebody whose mortality is a coin toss, it makes a lot of sense to start some kind of. Did, did you look at second attempts like people who got an IO as their first line of access? And then did that actually improve? Because if you're saying what, what we're doing is we're taking them up essentially so they can get a or a central, yeah. is that more successful after somebody has an IO with product going? No, that's a very good question. Yeah, um, uh, success rate, the, the success of IO overall attempts continued across. I think we looked up to three, the first three attempts. So even, so that's the thing, like it's it's a very high success and it's very speedy. So, uh, Michael, so what we're talking about here in a lot of this conversation has moved on uh, to what seems like a, a broader question in terms of trauma practice and systems-based practice and uh, individuals, uh, you know, applying and working within a team, applying those skill sets to getting uh, vascular access rapidly. And, you know, the question or the, the, both you and Ryan have mentioned that you say, well, why not use IO? Why not use it all? This is not a zero sum game. You can throw everything at them. These are sick patients who are dying at a high rate. But is that true? Is that, does that in negatively impact how the system functions? Does it neg negatively impact our learners? Uh, if you take, again, this message and uh, share it with residents and fellows, uh, can that be deleterious uh, as opposed to um, just saying that we're going to throw everything at them? And, and especially, and, and obviously there's, there's different uh, degrees of resources, number of people in a given trauma team, even at a specific center at a given day, if you have multiple traumas at one time, whatever it may be, you may not have the opportunity to put in an IO while someone's working on an ultrasound guided PIV while you have a resident trying to put in a central line? Well, I, that's a great question. You know, for us, and again, just like Dr. I mean, it, Dr. Joseph said, I mean, there's a lot of variability in all this stuff, right? Or, or just, you know, the way it works at our institution from a pre-hospital setting, I don't know why this is, there's a very high rate of IO usage in the pre-hospital setting. Uh, it's cool and it's fun. That's it is. Cool. It's cool and fun. And, um, you know, we utilize at our institution it's like, like was already alluded to, it's a very low percentage. Certainly we see a lot of, you know, high volume trauma, not as busy as Arizona is, but you know, most of our patients don't get an IO either. You, there, there, there's a lot of training that goes with this. So we do believe in the IO, you know, while we're getting other access to patients who are in extremis, we do probably weekly training with the nursing staff. We do monthly training with the residents, fellows, everybody where we specifically go over uh, IO placements. So everybody is very well trained from, you know, residents, nurses, APPs, faculty, et cetera. We review these procedures on video review. We have a very robust performance improvement with video review. So if we notice that the arm isn't appropriate, you know, positioned appropriately, for example, during an IO place, we'll provide that feedback to the team. Um, and, and, you know, I think there's going to be more to come on this. You know, Ryan and I very, very much have an interest in trauma team dynamics. And so we are looking at it. Not all this information is out there yet. Looking at, you know, trauma team dynamics and access and time to resuscitation, those sort of things. So do your team review peripheral IVs the same way? Like, do you guys do the same thing with peripheral IVs where you look at the arm and look at the person doing it and what size they put in and the different locations? Do you guys spend as much time in training? Yeah, we, we, we do. I mean, so the problem is, so there, yes, there's an art to the video review. So you never want to like single individuals out, right? So you have to be very careful that when you're reviewing these in a multi-spin setting, you're not saying this nurse, you know, or this physician struggle with this. But 
that aside from a team standpoint, yes, we bring up, you know, IO location, excuse me, IV, IO location, procedural techniques. Um, and how many times have you gone with the nurses in your center and sat down and said, okay, we're going to practice peripheral IVs and techniques and review it. And you've actually set them down like you do the IO. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that aside from the video review where we do this in a multidisciplinary setting with the nurses, I can't say that we focus as much from the education. That's a good point. Yeah. And the, that's, that's one of the things too, that is so key from this. Like, and then why is, again, why I'm so interested in Mike and I have done so much work in like, and like the way we resuscitate patients within the first half hour is because we, the bottom line is we're not as good as we think we are. Cause like these patients are sick as they're really sick. And like, and so like we do need to do absolutely, I don't know how many times a video review I've showed a central line and I focus on the angle of the needle of the operator and like how their technique is, how many are they, are they digging around for the vessel or are they going in and smoothly? Like, and that's the stuff that makes a difference. Like, and so that's, uh, you know, I think also a big takeaway for us is that we're trying to shine a light on everything we're doing in the Bay. Cause I think, you know, a lot of the Twitter the chatter, not to bring social media to this, but was like, oh, well, you're welcome that I tweeted it for you, so that people would read your article. And that's not there. Wait for that. Like a hundred thousand impressions when we were done with it. Yeah. No. Oh yeah, it was like that. Yeah. But I think it's like, like I I think we need to check our ego at the door a little bit and be like, hey, like guys, like somebody saying that I'm sorry, but somebody saying they do a saphenous cut down and as quickly as as putting in a peripheral guided IV or an IO, I think that's probably a little bit, uh, a little bit. Um... How many cut downs have you done? Oh, not that many. Done. I've probably yeah. So so it's funny. I was just talking to one of my partners about this, and I was like, "Hey, tell me, tell me what you did." And you know, Doctor Magnotti came from Memphis, and he's here. He's like, "In Memphis, we did cut downs all the time. The residents, the fellows, did cut downs. We were really good at cut downs." And so, again, I think each 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 center will find their own recipe. But we know that cut downs get you access to a pretty big vessel real quick, right? Like, but there is no doubt. I just I just again don't know that an IO gets you access to what we think it does, or hopefully that it does. And I think that piece still needs to be teased out. Is that a yes? So I would have looked. I mean, you can say it louder. Is that a yes? I just want to make sure. So I, like, I want I want us as a group, a community, to be like, hey, like guys, we aren't as good as we think we are in general. Like I I would love to say that I can throw in you know a central line every time, but there's been times where I've struggled, and like I think the video review and the study kind of highlights that a little bit too. And like, hey, we need to focus on what Doctor Joe is saying. So I. But I think that I don't think anyone argues with that. The trauma video review is phenomenal. I mean, that is an a extraordinarily powerful piece of equipment and, and you get some great data from it and it's great for performance improvement. And I'm I'm I'm, it's, I'm bummed that Dennis can't be on today because Dennis has started a, a new trauma program and center on Vancouver Island. And so what I would love to hear, because really what we're talking about is not trauma video review or the fact that an IO can be a useful tool, but how you implement these things and how you educate to say, well, how would you take a group of providers from, from the techs to the nurses, to your residents, to your senior staff, and how do you educate them and how do you train them? And then how do you create a system that provides the fastest time to resuscitation? And does that involve an IO or does it involve more focused on peripheral IVs? And and who are you training to do what, right? Like, are are you training residents? do this? Are you training nursing staff to do this primarily, or is it a combination of the two? How are you actually going to implement these findings in your your centers or not, Dr. Joseph? Yeah, we, I mean, we, we train everybody from, I mean, the medical students really, I mean, they're, they're not placing these in the Bay, but they're, they're part of the education, but you know, from the residents and the nurses to, to the APPs, I would say that most of the time it's placed by APPs or residents in the trauma Bay. As I mentioned, we have these, we have these skill, uh, sessions that we do but it's you know it's a it's a it's a culture thing so i mean if someone comes in and they're getting they have no access they're coming in with a gunshot wound to the chest they're getting a thoracotomy my team knows you know there's someone leading the team there's someone doing doing a thoracotomy and whoever is triaging the right chest you know doing a finger thoracotomy or a chest tube that person is going to do a right humeral io first they're going to triage the right chest and then they're going to work on a you know subclavian line on the right or whatever Time and money. No, absolutely. I understand with video review, right? It's time and money to be able to have that. But just let me just give a quick example. And I think this this goes back to Bilal's point about there's many factors and how we use, not so much for IO or IV education, but how we- Notice he called me Bilal instead of Dr. Joseph, but earlier he called me that. It's totally fine. I mean, we've been together a long time, but I just hope I didn't hurt your feelings or anything, man. It's usually the doctor the love of the podcast, right? the first email, you say doctor, and then when they email back, it's I appreciate it. I'm just listening very carefully. I just want you to know that. I appreciate that. So, so, you know, the, the point is that to, to look at like video review, how you teach, I mean, you know, doctors related to IO, but you know, one of the things that we realized 
before, as our video review for program was in its inception, I don't want to make us all about video review, but I think it's that's our area of, of passion and interest is, you know, one of the problems we were having is that it was, it was taking a really long time to set up our rapid infuser. I mean, it was taking five, six, seven minutes, right? People were in. So we identified the problem on video review. We, from a PI program standpoint, we record anybody who gets blood. I know exactly how long it takes them to get their rapid infuser set up, how long it takes to get blood, all that stuff. And we did very focused. Again, it goes back to kudos to our team. Our, you know, uh, nurse educator Becky really worked with the with the ED nurses and did almost daily for a period of time training sessions. And now we're down to less than a minute to get our rapid infuser set up using video review and focus education. So that's how we do at our center. And we would do the same thing with IO or IV. I ask you a question to that. Nine seconds difference between IO and peripheral IV attempt, right? And you've got 93% success in IO and 67% this is across the study. Did you take this data and go back to your, your program manager and your nurses and say, this 67% needs to change? We're going to focus. We're going to train. We're going to put things in place. We're going to bring in ultrasound. We're going to you know, do all the things we need to do. How much of that intervention from a quality standpoint did you all do at your centers with what this data? Because 67% is not acceptable, right? No, it isn't. It's 19 high volume centers. I mean, the point is absolutely. Yeah, but what did you do at your center with this data? Yeah, we, we, when these results came out, we focused on this in one of our trauma multiplayer video review sessions and talked about it. But I, but old bears to admit, like we've not done the ultrasound education. That's a, I, I, I think it's something that's absolutely worth thinking about that we at the center are not doing. And other places I've been are not doing that. And that's much. my point to the question is before we just jump to IO as the answer. We should say, how do we fix this 67% and how do we make these centers better and show me some quality metrics to do that. And then redo the study and show that, Hey, I implemented 60, 90 days of training with the nurses. We've done things. We've identified ways to put IVs in faster because there is data again, to show that the IV resus will get you to a better outcome than the IO resus. That's not a trauma data. That's in pre-hospital arrests and some of the other things. But I think again, you guys. Don't just dismiss peripheral IVs because IOs had a better time in your study. But to that point, Ryan, do you think that IOs are, these are not, this is not a new technology. Well, I shouldn't say it, it's, it's, it's relatively new, but not that new. Um, are they ready for prime time? Are you ready to, to put up IOs and say that, yeah, I mean, the access red tire and, and we can, you know, skip to that as opposed to accepting or, and, or, uh, uh, saying that that 67% peripheral IV success rate is something that is probably expected or maybe even worse across the country when you look at all centers. Yeah, that's, that's those are all excellent points. I think for me, this project started in fellowship because Penn had identified how difficult it was to get IV access, vascularized in patients and extras, patients undergoing thoracotomy. And that's where the single center pilot data was published out of. And that is where, for me, it was like, whoa, like we are really poor at this. And so Dr. Dove is right. Dr. Vell is right. We do need to train all the sound skills. We do need to train CVC skills. We do need to do all those things. But the IO is a bridge and is a very good tool when you have a patient. It could be a bridge. Once you grit to me that admit to what we're in, could be. Somebody who comes in who's hypotensive and who has a mortality of 44% in this cohort. And so, you know, then that, that, that mortality is consistent across, across trauma patients that arrive in, in, in hypotension. So it, uh, I think we have to be better at, at how we treat and then All right. So Ryan, just last week, last week I had a patient that came in, uh, with, by the time we counted 16 holes, uh, from gunshot wounds, uh, our EMS service in Wake County is actually phenomenal. Uh, they very, very clearly relate to me and the rest of the trauma team that this patient was moving. Uh, had uh, definitely had a pulse moving all four uh, extremities spontaneously and was breathing. And this was a mile from the hospital. And they said in route, which was again, less than a mile, they lost pulses. And uh, and so with that, you know, we've made quick decisions to proceed with recessive thoracotomy, intubation, right-sided chest tube and access. And we had a lot of folks around to help. And in that circumstance, access was difficult because the patient was, you know, pulseless. Uh, so that patient, so that, that's one type of patient, that's the most severe end of the spectrum. And then on the other, you have a patient maybe with an ISS of 22, like you said, in this study who has a pulse and that's hypotensive with systolic blood pressure in the nineties, uh, heart rate, maybe 120, something like that. Uh, should the IO be pulled up then in that patient? Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting point. I think for the really, really sick patient, like you, you have to consider high, like you just have to, you know, I mean, it, like exactly like Mike Bella said. So that patient in my practice would get 
you know, uh, probably a, uh, a right-sided humeral IO while the left thoracotomy is going on, a right-sided finger thoracostomy uh, to decompress the right chest, and then a subclavian. Now, at the same time, I would have somebody on the groin doing a femoral CVC. And so all those things are, 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 are happening simultaneously. And that's where teamwork and, you know, time and definitive care and how we can move the needle on that becomes really critical because somebody has to orchestrate all of it. So Bilal, if you have that patient. I would just add, when we do thoracotomies, one thing we would do, sometimes a right atrial catheter, what's yeah. within ourselves. And then, you know, we'll do that while we're doing, we'll do a cut down. I do think that's another way. And I'm, I'm just going to say something because I was going to bring it up when Dr. Clark asked her a question. Oh, no. Well, we didn't hear you. We didn't hear you. You just froze. I didn't hear what you said. I said our EM colleagues, I would have to look at one of our, because they, they walk around, they're really good with the IO compared to my trauma residents and my our surgical residents are facile with lines. So let me ask you, Bilal, it's this patient, this patient who's, who's pulseless or, or peri-arrest or whatever it may be, are do you have your team, uh, assuming you have a bunch of folks, you have the nurses working on a peripheral IV, you have a resident or fellow working on a central line, do you have someone put an IO in? More times than not, no. If someone is in our room with the IO, I want to definitive no. I want to but I'm going to with you because I'm not going to. I'm not going to. But I will tell you, this patient will. If we, by the time we do our thoracotomy, I'd say 90% of these kids that get thoracotomy will have some sort of accident. And push back on that for a second. So, so, and I'll just use this scenario. Now we got four people against one. We'll just keep going here. This was difficult access. Hold on now. So, so access is difficult. Is there any reason that you wouldn't go, for, you know, someone's poking at the groin, they can't get access. In this circumstance, we had a nurse that got two PIVs that we were pushing through while the resident and, and, and actually a senior partner trying to get access in the groin and the IO was sitting there on the table 20 feet away. You can use that as well. So are you not using it? Look, if you want to put the IO, the only hesitance that I have to putting the IO, this is what it is. We know that kid's been down seven minutes, nine minutes or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. The only thing that's bringing them back is resuscitation at that point. They need some carrying capacity, some oxygen, some blood, whatever, right? And and you're not going to get the Belmont to the IO. You're not going to get a high flow. You're going to get a, again, you're going to get a lead. How much How much was it, Ryan? You told me it was like in 150 cc's in a minute. Look, is that really going to make it better if someone's like sanguinated? I mean, I mean, do you put five IO? Should I put 10 IOs in and get a leader that way? Pressure back and IOs for everywhere, right? Like, I don't know. I'm not trying to be funny. Like, if you think about it, the only thing you're going to bring those hearts back when you open all these chests, open tons of chests, they need some sort of resuscitation. And 150 cc's a minute is not going to answer that question. And it's not going to make that patient more resuscitated to get a peripheral. And that's where I think I would go to a cut down a right atrial one. But Michael, what if it's, well, I think the right atrial thing's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, and okay. I, But there's a certain skill set with that. And we are well beyond, when we're talking about right atrial catheterization, we're well beyond. Put it in an IO in that case, I would not say no. Okay. Okay. Do I think it makes any bit of difference? I don't. I think that the nurse that got the two peripheral IVs should be congratulated. And I mean, that, that, like, that's a beautiful luxury, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a luxury to have that. So I think what you don't want to see, and again, when you have time to sort of, you, you're not actively involved in the, in the, in the, in the care of the patient is you see people struggling and struggling and one minute goes by, two minute goes by, three minute goes by, four minute goes by, five minutes. And we've seen delays made at various institutions where you're struggling to get access and you get the tunnel vision and all of a sudden you're 10 minutes into it, have no access, no blood. So I just, that's do message is, is you know you want to avoid that situation whatever your vascular access strategy is because there's been now two recent studies one of which was Bilal's that shows that you know delaying getting blood or delaying getting resuscitation increases mortality like do, do we think I'm just posing this to the group I mean do we think that like two minutes between blood or no blood even if it's at 200 milliliters an hour is that clinically significant I mean I don't necessarily know if I know the answer but some of that data would suggest that it is yeah but 150 cc's a minute or let's say and that's the other thing. I mean, where you, it depends if it's here, if it's in the sternum, the military yeah. does. Yeah. It's, you know, then, then you're talking about different flow rates, right? He gave you the best flow rate, which is not the same for all the positions. Not every IO flows the same. Is that fair? Yeah. Nor does every peripheral IV. I think we got to be careful of make sure that we're putting the right IO in the best place yeah. to be. Question for Bilal for Michael was, you know, does that, does that two or three minutes matter again with your your study was looking at by the minute right it was by the minute right Paul can you tell us real quick what that study showed yeah it was, uh, basically just showed that every minute that passed without any resus I think it was 
I don't remember, like 8% or 10% increase in mortality from any resuscitation, which now we didn't look at specific, like a certain volume. And that's where I can't, why I can't answer this question. Does 300 cc's, which would be the best IO for two minutes, save a life in two minutes? If it, if it gets them out of hypertension. Yeah. But I, mean, I don't think 300 cc's are getting anybody out of hypertension. You don't have, and you don't have surgical control, right? You don't have surgical control. You're not getting, you got to get hemorrhage control. And so that, and then Ryan, this is your kill shot, Ryan. This is where you no, I'm gonna tell them that it matters. This is this is why, and this is why the research is so exciting. Mark. Can I can I ask another question? How do you all know when an IO is? Because I have no experience with IO. I have to say that I tried, I put one in 2003, and it's been 20 years. So how do you know when your IO? You know, you, somebody drills it in, and then you put this bag and you hook it up. How do you know that's actually working? I mean, you flush it the same way that you flush an IV, and as long as things are going forward, and I mean. Yeah. So everybody, you test it every time you put it in. Is that so you? You ask for it marrow. Yeah, you, you ask for it, 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 bone marrow. It, I don't want to say you know nothing pathological, but it, it, you're pretty certain that you're if you get marrow. If you don't get marrow, it doesn't mean that you're not in it. Flush as well. You know, you take your you, you can use that line. And, and, these, the, and these complication rates are only with a certain number. Imagine if we start putting a ton more IOs in. I mean, I think Mackie Neal from Pittsburgh was like, "We have a lost needle or an MRI." I mean. There's a bunch of questions that were coming out. But, but I'm saying there was a bunch of questions that were interesting that we haven't even opened up the book once we open up the complications. And so I guess my point is if you're, you know, we were so, okay, so we're saying 300, you know, it's not, it's not that significant. You're not going to change someone's mortality or blood pressure 300. But, you know, it's 300 versus zero, right? As you're trying to, you know, the, the problem would be if you go to IO and you're, you're, the, the IO interferes with team dynamic, you know, placing multiple lines yeah, in one number be a problem. team dynamics, which we've not seen. We, we're looking at the data now, but anecdotally, we've not seen that. But certainly, if IO was hindering your ability, whether it's from a resource standpoint or just physical, you know, getting in the way to get more definitive access, that's a problem, right? But I feel like if you guys wanted to look at something, don't look at the volume, look at things like, I mean, it was mentioned earlier you know, for intubation or look at calcium infusion, look at other things, other adjuncts to resus to see if that made a difference, right? Like that may be where the answer is in your next study, but not with volume. So are you going to, Michael, are you going to look at whether or not IO, you know, interferes with team dynamics and other things? I mean, not that, so we, we are looking at, and there's more to, you know, I don't want to spoil anything. We have, we are looking at team dynamics and time access and those sort of things, that, you know, do, do better functioning teams. I mean, there, you know, there's subjectivity in that, right? I mean, I don't want to even get into all that kind of stuff, but, but anecdotally from, at least from at our center and our video review program, I've not seen instances where I can think of where, you know, the IO sort of, you know, cause. And if anything, I think you, I got to say the opposite. I'll be honest. And this is again, like totally subjective and I don't from my center, but we have procedural training every month where we get together with the nurses. We split off the juniors one and twos together in one trombe and threes and fives. And then the ones and twos focus on chest twos, binders, that three to fives focus on thoracotomy skills and all those kinds of things. And one of the things we teach is IO and central lines. And so we engage our nurses there too. And, um, uh, and you know, that I think if anything, empowering the nurses to do an IO, empower the medics to do an IO, it does the opposite. But see, both of you, every time you talk about your education, it's either IO or IVC, CVC, no, no, the 67% failure rate of your peripheral, I would encourage both of you to become champions in your institutions for peripheral IV placement and see if you can make a dent. I don't know if right. I can, but that third piece in the equation, see, you know, central lines, Peripheral lines and then IOs like practice all of it. It's a very good point. Because last time I placed night, the last time I placed peripheral IV was I'm on my anesthesia rotation while I was a med student. So and it's crazy. Like so, we have totally relegated that. Or at least we have here in my shop. And you're right. It is something that we should be more actively involved in and and training. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, when you put an IO in someone that doesn't need it, I'm sure it works just as good as Reboa did too. <laughs> so I was just want to say, it. it just yeah, so. I had to say it. I just want to say, look, I really appreciate what you guys are doing and how you're pushing the science. And we should and keep pushing and prove us in this lifetime that we need to do this. And maybe that becomes part of it. But don't just don't jump on a message that's way ahead of the data that you have. I think that's all I would ask. No, that's that's a very good point. And this is a good a good a good example of how like almost like in social media that message kind of like total got got away from us. So it's nice to be able to at least come back here and talk about it like in a you know scientific manner. Um, but no, I, I, I totally appreciate uh, all the points that, that people So I, I think we're all in agreement that it seems like no matter what 
we're doing, we're probably not as fast or as slick as we think we are at doing it. And there's probably more room for improvement in getting a better, faster time to resuscitation that probably will have good impacts on our patients and their outcomes uh, long term. And whether we disagree or not on how to get there, I think is the main point of this discussion. So I'll just close things out by making each of you guys go on the spot and say, if you're implementing this, you know, strategies in your shops, you know, actually moving the needle on time to resuscitation, what are you focusing your resources and time and education efforts on for your teams? Uh, Dr. Bella, you can start if you'd like. Yeah, I would say, you know, like as, you know, as Bilal said, we probably should focus more on IV. We focus more on IOs when it comes to access, education, as well as central lines, you know, obviously. But I would say there's a there's a lot of things to do, and I think that one of the most important things has not really much to do with access. Maybe it's related is just getting the patients out of the bay into the into care. And there's a number of ways to do that. Maybe I O and I don't know if, if access makes a difference in terms of the total time in the bay. We are you know, but I think the important thing is getting patients out of the bay. It's quick access, eliminating unnecessary procedures, which is another whole area we want to look at. Is like what procedures are necessary? What can we eliminate? How can we improve efficiency in the trauma bay? What is a good time in the trolley? That's another thing we're exploring, right? Um, and so those are those are really important things. But I think that the, the key thing is getting patients definitive hemorrhage control. All right, Dr. Joseph, you're up. What are you implementing, and and how are you going to make time to recess faster? Yeah, I think. Look, I downloaded the um, Arrow Easy IO app that you can have on your phone, and you know, I think it's nice to have, I don't think you should limit yourself from any tool that could possibly make it better to save patients' life. That being said, you know, I, maybe I'm a little biased, been doing this for a long time. I don't remember putting a lot of IOs in my tenure and I will continue to push ultrasound guided peripheral IV. I will continue to push. One thing we didn't spend a lot of time on is look skill set. And this is one of those things that, you know, our residents and our interns and our students need to be trained up in this. We cannot get this up right away. And I think we don't have a pathway for our residents for IO yet. And maybe that's something to, maybe I could send them to, you know, I don't know, to Dallas or to Rochester to learn about IOs. But, uh, but I think, um, I, again, I, I think that I think the goal is, everyone's agreed, is that, look, a sick patient, it's not a one person. You heard this multiple times, it's a team event. Training our nurses, training our colleagues, our medics are just as important. Our pre-hospital personnel is just as important as, you know, training ourselves. And so when we set up systems, the focus is going to be, again, I, I have no, in my mind, any day and night, I'm going to push that peripheral IV over anything else because even a central line, because I know that patient you know, that could change, that could be the difference between life-saving or not, because I'm not convinced that the 150 cc's is there yet for fluid resuscitation. All right, Dr. Dumas. Yeah, I totally agree with everything that's been said, honestly. Like, I think the training is absolutely key. I think the study highlights how sick this patient cohort is, how difficult and challenging it is to get access in these patients uh, across, you know, almost 20 centers. And um, for me, I think it really also highlights, like, none of this happens without an effective leader and a trauma resuscitationist. And so the ability to coordinate a resuscitation dictates how this access is going to go. And I think, you know, to put do a cut down, to start an IO, to start a chest tube and to start up to a peripheral ID or to bring in the ultrasound because we're struggling. And so I think for us too, the focus has been a lot of our leadership training uh, and team dynamics too, which has been a kind of a nice segue, uh, you know, after we've looked at all this vascular access. So Patrick, I'm just going to turn it around on you real quick. Your scenario of a hypotensive patient who has a you know high ISS, not crashing, not not getting a thoracotomy, but pretty sick, no access. What are you reaching for first? Are you reaching for an IO or a peripheral or a, the cordis kit that's in your bay? Um, ultrasound uh, guided IV plus a central line, and if the patients, if we're having difficulty, then an IO. Um, and, uh, I think that as was mentioned by multiple folks is you should not limit yourself. These are patients who are dying with, ex and they have extraordinarily high mortality rates. You know, us as trauma surgeons, we, we see folks who die from brain injury or, or they bleed to death and we can help with that bleeding to death. And this is uh, critical to all that. And I, I commend, we, these are three, uh, trauma leaders that we have on the show today. These are people who are putting uh, so much time and effort into education. You kept hearing that over and over again in systems dynamics, and that is so critically uh, important. And uh, that is 
ultimately what will move the needle uh, will be that that type of education. So congratulations to all them. I look forward to seeing you know what else comes out of this this research and trauma video reviews ex is extremely exciting and extremely helpful. So folks that are listening have not had the opportunity to check that out or don't have it at their centers. I would highly encourage that you look into that because it is a valuable uh, a tool as well. Uh, and so again, appreciate all you guys being on. This has been uh, fantastic. I think it's been a, a very robust discussion. And uh, to everyone listening, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.